both the complexity of designing learning from the ground up, but also it did remind me that we've got to be careful that we don't get hung up on physical spaces, we don't get hung up on the integration of technology, we don't get hung up on destroying all the silos of subjects and mushing our subjects together, because none of those structural things or those constructs are actually the answer. At the end of the day, what really still matters is the relationship, the learning relationship that teachers um, develop with their learners, the teacher's belief in the student's um, ability to succeed, and actually the mindset and the creativity and the ability of that teacher as a learning designer is what really matters. You're listening to the Augmented Learning Podcast and Video Log. Stories from inspiring educators, leaders, and influencers who are challenging the status quo. Today's episode is sponsored by My Study Series, an online learning platform supporting Kiwi teachers and students through NCEA. With automated self-grading quizzes after every video, My Study Series ensures students receive immediate feedback on their level of understanding. Check it out now at mystudyseries.co.nz. Kia ora everyone and welcome to episode 45 of the Augmented Learning Podcast and Video Log. We are very fortunate today to be hearing from one amazing leader. Her name is Claire Amos, I'm sure you've heard of her, and she's a principal of Albany Senior High School. Now, have you ever sat down to have a conversation and when you walk away from that conversation, you feel like you're more intelligent than when you started that conversation? Well, that's what this episode was like for me. Claire is innovative. She is future focused, she is articulate, she is passionate, she's all of those amazing things that you'd want from a really inspiring leader. And I guess what's more than that is she understands that despite all of the shiny devices and all of the pedagogy and all of those um, innovative practices that you can be installing within your schools, she understands that at the forefront of everything is really strong relationships, both with your students and with your staff. And we talk a lot about this throughout the episode. Um, I'm really excited to share this with you and I hope you get as much enjoyment from it and learning from it as I did. Claire, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Before we get started, can can you tell us a little bit about your teaching background and experience and a few tidbits about your school and the students you teach? Absolutely. My name is Claire Amos. I'm principal at Albany Senior High School here in Auckland. Um, I've been an educator for 21 years. Um, I'm Auckland born and bred. I started out my career at Rangitoto College, which was the the high school that I went to as a student, um, and then moved my way around um, Auckland at um, Takapuna Grammar School. I went across and was head of English at um, Auckland Girls Grammar School before going to Auckland University and heading to um, after that to Epsom Girls as their director of e-learning. And then I had the incredible opportunity of being a foundation deputy principal at Hobsonville Point Secondary School and, and 
school that's been open for sort of five or six years now, um, before taking on the role here as deputy at Albany Senior High School um, on the North Shore in Auckland. And um, we are regarded as an innovative learning environment. Um, It's a big open plan senior high school um, that's been open for 10 years now. Um, I think Albany is probably best known for its um, leadership um, and courage around impact projects. Um, We have been committed to impact projects and project-based learning from day one at Albany Senior High School. We're also a um, school that's been known for its work around tutorials and homerooms and having a really relational um, approach to teaching and learning. Um, Barbara Kavanagh's mantra always um, was, it's not if you're bright, it's how you're bright. And I think one of the things I'm most proud of is what an incredibly inclusive school um, we are at Albany. I tend to talk about the fact that we're not a high school where you need to fit in. We're a high school where you belong exactly as you are. And um, it's a school that Um, celebrates individuality um, and we're also a school that I think works really hard to develop really strong learning relationships and pride ourselves on the fact that we um, we do nurture these young people that become really quite articulate and independent um, critical thinkers so it's a it's a really neat high school it's had an incredible 10-year history, um, being innovative from day one, but it's also a school that's um, still got a a story to tell, and I'm really excited about where we're going to take the school for over the next um, five or 10 years, and particularly looking at how we might deliver um, things like our specialist subjects far more um, creatively and responsively and in a way that makes sure that learning is um, connected to the wider world. But that's us and that's me. It's, it sounds like a, a really amazing school. And I, I spent my first eight years teaching at Wellington High School, which sounds very similar. And I really miss, since I've moved to a more traditional school, I really miss that approach, mm-hmm. that big focus on learners and building relationships and innovative practice. So the fact that you're, you're being able to roll out all of this cool stuff, it, it must be so exciting for you. And you wear, you, you've got this really strong or, or rich experience going through all these different schools that that you mentioned, mm-hmm. which is, um, you know, shows why you're in the in the role you're in. You also wear a lot of hats outside of being a principal, don't you? Yes, yes, I do. I do. What are some of those? And, and I'm keen to hear how you manage your time because being a principal sounds like it's a pretty tough job. I, th- I think I'm pretty on 24-7. And, um, but, but then again, I'm also really staunch about having a, a really clear um, sort of boundary in terms of demanding um, of myself and others that I have a really good, I think, um, work-life sort of blend or balance. So, yeah, I do wear a lot of hats. And, and the reason I wear a lot of hats is because I'm passionate about education and the whole education system. And I'm passionate about leading change. And I believe if you want to effect change, you need to do it on a number of levels. So you need to do it on the ground and be in a school environment, um, I think, is a really powerful way to do it. But I also have um, recognised quite early on in my career that if I wanted to make broader changes that I needed to try and get at the table as much as possible on sort of national reference groups um, 
and, and nas- national groups of a whole variety of sorts. So um, I've been on the um, teaching council, which then became the education council. And um, of course, we're back to being teaching council now. And that's been an incredible journey over the last sort of five or so years, um, being able to be involved in a whole lot of national in- initiatives and policy development. Um, I've also always thrown my hat in the ring for being involved in a number of ministry reference groups. I worked with um, Minister Nikki Kay's 21st Century Reference Group. Um, I've been on the Future state brainstorming group for NZQA um, and I've also sat on the advisory board for Network for Learning from day one. I also think it's really important um, as educators that we are connected beyond the school ecosystem as well. Um, So I do work, I'm on the board of NetSafe New Zealand and I'm also involved with 21C Skills Lab which is um, a really neat startup that's looking at um, connecting sort of aspects of business and industry and getting people to think of it differently in schools, particularly looking at um, those sort of soft skills or 21st century skills or future focused skills, however you'd like to frame them. But um, yeah, I, I, I have a, a really strong belief and I, I believe this more and more the more I go through my journey that having a, a network um, and a series of connections enables you to do a whole lot both personally, but also um, it, it really does open up opportunities for your your school and community as well. So my whole thing is that I tend to seek out those opportunities. I'm I'm not shy. <laughs> um, I, I tend to approach people if I think there's a role I can play um, in any way, shape, or form, and I'll keep reminding them that you know I'm keen and eager to be involved. And it's amazing, you know, if if you keep um, you know, reaching out to people, it's surprising how often people say yes and invite you to be part of something and in return are willing to, to support back as well. 100%. And I, I, you know, that's, I don't know how you do it, first of all, because that sounds like so busy, but <laughs> I, I've recently come to realise that a lot of my best learning has come from outside of education. So learning from other people who have different qualities that you want to aspire to and taking some of those learnings and being able to bring them back into the classroom or into leadership. Um, And that's been really powerful. So I think all those experiences kind of culminate in you being able to do a really amazing, fantastic job for your learners um, at your school, Mm. which is awesome. You've so making that transition from, from deputy principal at Hobsonville Point to now principal at Albany Senior High what 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 part of the transition from senior leader to principal do you think was the most challenging for you? Um, I, th- I think um, recognising that the buck stops with you. Um, I mean, I've been really lucky at Hobsonville Point Secondary School. I don't, I don't think it was necessarily a traditional um, deputy principal experience. I think because we were creating a school from the ground up, um, I was lucky enough to, you know, work really closely with Mari Abraham, and and um, he allowed us to have sort of there was a real collaborative sense of leadership in that school, and. Um, I think I was across all areas of leadership in a way that sometimes you might not be in a more traditional deputy principal um, role. You know, quite often they have quite clear-cut portfolios and that that's the area that they work in. Whereas I think because we were designing everything from the ground up, whilst we each had discrete responsibilities, um, we couldn't help but be involved in every part of um, the school and its development and design. And... Um, so I think coming across here, 
on one level, I was surprised that it didn't feel that different. And it, it made me re- recognise and appreciate just how much leadership opportunity I'd been given at Halberton Point Secondary School, but also actually under Madeline Gunn as Director of eLearning at Epsom Girls. She gave me a whole lot of leadership, school-wide leadership as well, um, with leading the ICT professional development there. And, and to be fair, I think I've seized those opportunities. I, I don't tend to wait for people to give me permission. I tend to just... Um, I, I like that leadership space and I think I've always sort of um, populated that leadership space as a result. But um, I guess the different things, um, it took me a little while to get used to the different relationship you have with your staff. I mean, I am I pride myself on being very relational as a teacher and a leader and I have always gathered friends um, um, throughout my educational career. And I think what one of the things that struck me as different is when you come in as principal, you don't make those same friendships. Yep, you, you definitely connect with people and I will always be a social beast. So I will always have um, a degree of sort of friendships and relationships I form. But there's no question that when you come in as principal, there's, there's a slight element of... Um, you know, you being viewed a bit differently, but also, you know, you having to actually um, maintain a, a, a little bit of distance. I mean, I'm never going to be one, like I I think, I mean, I, I ever struggle. <laughs> I struggle to <laughs> behave any differently in any role that I'm in. But but you do, you do recognise the dynamics are different when you come in as a leader, and particularly at Albany Senior High School. I was coming into a senior leadership team who had all been here for 10 years. Um, and so I was sort of an outsider coming into that space. And, you know, we've developed a really strong working relationship as a, a senior leadership team, but it's definitely... A different dynamic um, when you come in as, as principal, and for me, being a, a real sort of relation, relational, relationship sort of based um, teacher and leader, that I found that quite challenging at times. But I've also think I've found my my space now, and I'm really comfortable in it. Mm. I've I've heard Mori speak twice now, and I think he's an amazing leader. And I think you're very fortunate, um, as it's probably obvious that to be a senior leader underneath him, and that probably helped you a lot in that transition. And I like what you're saying about relationships and and that experience there. And when I think back to probably the best leader I've had in any context, which is Prue Kelly at Wellington High School, you could, yes, you could yeah. see that she had a very similar approach to you, where she understood that there needed to be some professional distance, but you also, you can't be a good leader without having good relationships with your staff. And no. she was very much part of the crew when it was time to let your hair down and, and she was part of the team. And that was really nice to see. And I haven't seen that in any other leader in any experience since, but I think mm-hmm. um, it sounds like you're very similar to her and and, and that must be really great. Yeah, I'm having fun as, as yeah. well. Like I sort of, I mean, I, 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 I sort of, I love fashion and I love design and I love dressing up as a bit of a goober. And, um, and, and actually I think both students and staff really appreciate that in terms of, I haven't adopted any kind of professional principal persona. I am determinedly myself and myself is quite colourful <laughs> and I'm not about to change that. And um, I actually think it's it's actually been a really um, beneficial way of being because, you know, I think you it gives people something to talk about um, and a way to relate to you that's really important. I think too often school leaders 
try and present this sort of dry balls front um, that doesn't necessarily do them any favours in the long run. You know, like that's one thing I really learned from Maury. You know, Maury's pretty bloody colourful himself as well. And um, I think he, he made me um, sort of recognise how that can actually be um, a real strength in a leader. Hey, what was setting a school up from the ground up? What did that do for your mm. understanding of the way students learn? Because that's that's a big task, and there's a lot of preparation and planning that goes into something like that. It, it made me recognise just how complex it is. It's it's one thing, and I've blogged about this several times. It's one thing being in a traditional context and going, "This is how everything should be." In my ideal world, would do X, Y, Z, and it would be amazing. And you know, what's stopping us and all the rest of it? And it, it, it surprised me that when we were given an absolutely clean slate. It was nearly debilitating. It was sort of like you ended up having this real crisis of confidence that now that you were being given this opportunity to design something from the ground up, that the incredible responsibility that lies with you and the fact that you're actually um, in charge of what happens for these young people for, you know, most of the hours of their week. Um, and you were potentially laying down the foundations um, for the rest of their lives <laughs> in a high school context. Mm. And and so whilst you can be really courageous from the confines of a traditional school and be really critical of the practice that's going on, you can, you know, exert all of these I- fabulous ideas that would be so much better than what you're doing, suddenly being given the license and the freedom and the space to enact those things, um, you realise um, the seriousness of what it is that you're doing and um, you recognise that you have to do whatever you do with such care because actually people are trusting you with the young people um, and giving those young people the, you know, the, the knowledge, the skills and the competencies that they're going to need to succeed. So I think it was... Both, it was an incredible learning journey um, because, you know, you got to try all that stuff that you thought would be a great idea and some of the stuff stuck and, and absolutely has stood the test of time and then other stuff doesn't work so well. Like I, I think it's really interesting the work that's going on in a lot of schools at the moment where they're looking at things like um, integrated learning and um, breaking down silos of subjects. On the surface level, it sounds like a fantastic idea and, you know, learning will be so much richer, but then you do it in practice and you realise actually it's no different than what goes on in a single-cell classroom. It's incredible learning as long as you have incredible teachers engaging in incredible pedagogy. You know, it it can be as much of a flaming turkey as something that happens in a single-cell classroom or it can be as exciting as something that can still happen in a single-cell classroom. So I think I think it made me realise and appreciate um, the, both the complexity of designing learning from the ground up, but also it did remind me that we've got to be careful that we don't get hung up on physical spaces, we don't get hung up on the integration of technology, we don't get hung up on destroying all the silos of subjects and mushing our subjects together because none of those structural things or those constructs are actually the answer. At the end of the day, what really still matters is the relationship, the learning relationship that teachers um, develop with their learners 
is, the teacher's belief in the student's um, ability to succeed, and actually the mindset and the creativity and the ability of that teacher as a learning designer is what really matters. You know, and 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 when you don't have the benefits of a fancy school building or all the technology that you want or the ability to blow up your timetable and join up subjects, you you can think that the answer lies in those sort of structural things or those constructs. And then when you get given all of those constructs, you realise that it's not as simple as that. And actually there's so much more um, to quality teaching and learning. I think that's a really powerful statement coming from somebody who is such an innovative practitioner and leader to say that, you know, there's all of these, we could be doing all of these great things, but actually it really just comes down to these very, very simple things that often we forget. And I think if if schools are, you know, implementing all of these different things and, and seeing that some of them work and some of them don't, as long as they're reflective on the things that don't work and instead of just throwing them out the door and going, that, that didn't work, it's no good. But as long as they're reflective, I think um, they're doing their students a service by understanding why that didn't work and, and what the next step can be yep. and, and, and that and that sort of thing. So um, I, I really enjoyed what you had to say there and it surprised me a little bit, to be honest. Yeah, I think, and it's. I think it surprised me, to be honest, when I went through that process. And um, you know, and I came across here to um, Albany, and I, I think there were some staff and some people that I would thought I'd be wanting to airlift, and you know, all of the structural stuff and things that we did at our, um, Hobsonville Point Secondary School. And actually, you know, it didn't. It, it's not about that. It's about understanding the context you're in and the potential of the context that you're in, and you know, who who we have as students and who we have as staff. And and really having a, um, uh, you know, I, I think innovative learning environment is actually not a space; it's a mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think if people can understand that and understand that there's actually very little in the way of barrier, particularly the way our New Zealand curriculum is designed and NCA is designed, there's very very little stopping us creating the most. Um, you know, beautiful, responsive, creative modules of learning for our young people and, you know, designing really responsive, personalised ways for them to be assessed. There's very little stopping us. You know, yep, there's a base level of technology that's really useful to have. You know, definitely one-to-one devices open up a whole lot of possibilities. But beyond that, um, you know, if you can get your kids to have access to a device and decent um, bandwidth and Wi-Fi, the sky's the limit if you bring that mindset to your classroom that it's a partnership, that you, you're actually really working with these young people to co-design um, creative um learning episodes and, and being really responsive to their interests and needs. You know, that, that does demand our teachers being really knowledgeable about their um, curriculum areas and learning areas because my theory is that you can't play and be creative and have it result in really rich learning unless you know your stuff as a teacher. Yeah. Um, and so I do think we need to work really closely with our teachers around you know, the depth of understanding it of what what is it that you're actually trying to teach? What are the threshold concepts and skills and knowledge that you must teach these young people in order for them to move on and move forward? And often we we 
we fall over because we don't do that foundational groundwork um, about deeply understanding whatever it is that we're trying to teach these young people. And then we get sidetracked with all these sort of accessories and jazz hands and, you know, spaces and all the rest of it. And actually all you're doing is um, superficial fluff because, um, you know, you've got to have a really deep understanding of what it is that you're trying to help these young people to know and learn and understand and how you want them to develop. And, you know, so much of that is about the teacher and their practice and the relationship that they have with the student. So little of that is about how much other flash, flash technology you have or the space that you're teaching in. You know, some of my best teaching happened in, um, you know, very traditional single-cell classrooms throughout my career, you know. Yep, I've had some real highlights where I've co-taught with some amazing people and it's really clicked and worked and, you know, that's been absolutely magic. But, man, it wasn't the spaces and it wasn't the the flash as technology that made the difference. It, it was coming into that classroom, um, knowing your stuff, but also being willing to um, be really creative and responsive with these young people and have fun in the classroom yeah, as well. Certainly. You, you talk about having your lens on powerful learning and you describe three mm. high-level questions. Is learning visible, is learning deep, and is learning inclusive? I can grasp visible and inclusive, but can you elaborate on deep learning and what that looks like at your school? But yeah, so um, um, deep learning is uh, it's also a nod to the work that Albany Senior High School has been doing for some years now. So they adopted um, what's called the Trivium model of learning, which came out of classical education. Um, and that is a, a sort of a cycle that's described as moving through um, grammar, dialectic and um, rhetoric. And what that means basically in plain language is the grammar is about sort of receiving the information the dialectic is more about processing and really understanding what it is that you're learning and why you're learning it. And then the rhetoric is your ability to be able to transfer and um, sort of um, communicate what it is that you've learned. And the thing that I'm really interested about there is the dialectic and this idea that um, you never want learning to be about people um, sort of getting information and then being able to regurgitate it. My worry about exams is quite often that's what they're, you know, assessing and testing is your ability to, you know, basically memorization or rote learning um, and then you regurgitate it. The, the deep learning happens when you understand why you're learning what you're learning, um, when you understand how to apply that learning to new contexts, um, where you bring a critical lens to what you're learning and you understand that there's different um, perspectives about the topic or the subject that you're learning and that we all bring different lenses to what is, is you know, biases and um different viewpoints um, about topics. So, you know, not just thinking there's um, one view on, say, sort of health and well-being in your PE um, context, you know, that our, our young people need to understand heora, they need to understand more cultural views of health and well-being, but they need to also understand that depending on where you live or where you're from, um, you know, what period of time you lived in, um, that concept of health and well-being has changed as well. So deep learning happens when you know why you're learning it. Deep learning happens when you can critically appraise what you're learning. And, and to me, deep learning happens when you can see students are taking it out of a context and applying it to another context. And, you know, and, and that's where 
connected learning can be really powerful or integrated learning. You mentioned in your pitch for principal when you're applying for a principal position that you had a desire to build powerful partnerships and networks that you've, and you've since implemented some projects around this. How do you believe partnerships and networks can impact our students in a positive way? Um, in terms of um, partnerships, I, th- I think they're absolutely key to um, to deep learning or authentic learning um, for young people. And I, I think time is actually up on our, um, schools or learning in classroom to be isolated from communities and business. And um, I think it's something I've learned from being involved in spaces beyond education myself. I think it's only when I've actually reached out and gone into spaces around sort of business and innovation and startup where I've realised that, man, the learning that I do as a result of that is hugely powerful because we can talk about only so much in theory. Um, you know, the reality is you've got to get out there and you've got to experience it to understand it. Um, and I just think that sometimes I, I wonder with connected learning or integrated learning, you know, our first um, step is often to think about how we can connect across subjects and curriculum within schools. I, I wonder what it would look like if it became absolutely normal for all of our, you know, as many of our modules or courses to be done as possible in partnership with business and industry and community groups. And, um, you know, the reasons for this being positive are just many and varied. Um, For instance, I I think there's authentic learning. So, for instance, you can understand how what you're learning in the classroom is valuable or important beyond the classroom environment. So, for instance, we're we're starting to form a relationship with a local farm that's trying to go organic, and and we're we're looking at all sorts of ways that our geography um, program might work with them, but also our um, our entrepreneurial, um, our business students might work with them as well. Well, um, uh, and also it's about our young people get, getting an understanding around the, about the world being bigger than themselves. So I think teenagers can often struggle to appreciate um, that the world is greater than their wants and needs, um, and we want them to understand the bigger, wider world and their response. You know, I think we're starting to see a real awakening in young people around sustainability and the environment and those sorts of things. And I think they're starting to really recognise that they have a really important role to play and an important voice. So um, if we can connect them with those community groups that power up um, that role and responsibility that they have. Um, On a more pragmatic level, I think it's about them understanding the opportunities that await for them beyond high school. Um, so often people's career trajectories are, you know, based on a bit of bit of careers planning they might have done at school and what mum and dad have done and people in the family. And I think we're seeing time and time again young people missing out on really, really rich um, pathways and um and careers that they could be getting into. We know that we have an absolute shortage of people with um, science and technology and engineering, um, um, computer engineers and software engineers in New Zealand at the moment. And so those companies are employing people from overseas and um, bringing them in from around the world. And it means that our young people are actually missing out on these opportunities that are there. And it's about a pipeline for them. And, And some people get a bit funny when you start talking about the future of work. It's like, 
they think we're trying to create a whole lot, you know, they think of it in a real industrial mindset where they think, oh, my God, you know, it's not just the job of schools to produce workers. Um, it's not about that. It's about making sure that they have the skills and the capabilities and the competencies to thrive in society. And part of thriving is having um, a really successful career or pathway or being a really successful entrepreneur. And, um, you know, the only way that I think we can really authentically teach a lot of those competencies and skills to our young people is um, by giving them the opportunity to step one foot in those worlds at the very least. I think so often we mollycoddle them and then we wonder why they can't manage their time and their selves and their money. You know, we've got to give them a bit of space to learn how to do those things. I think our, our lessons and our learning needs to have some utility value for our kids and being a being a physical educator or an HOD of physical education, we often we get our kids outside of the classroom a lot, and we get a lot of pushback from other learning areas. Um, and they say, you know, you take your kids out far too much, and it's impacting our classes. But yeah. I'm, I, I I I refuse to apologise for that yeah. because the learning that we're doing with these kids is real, and I guarantee they're going to take more from the one hour we take out of out of our classes for them to go and get some real world experience than yeah. weeks in front of with me in the classroom doing work like that because it just totally. they see they see how they can implement what they're doing in a real world. They get real world experience. They meet real experts. Like we're not the holders of knowledge anymore. There's other people out there that can teach the things we need to teach better than us. And as teachers we need to be prepared to let go of some of those things. Totally. I, I couldn't agree more. And it's even a, around aspects like, you know, there's people that get precious about kids going away on holidays in the school term. I, You know, should have a kid's lucky enough to be taken away somewhere and have an experience with their family um, and do something beyond school. I say power to them, you know. Mm. Let's work with those young people and get them to manage their responsibilities around assessment and keeping up with their schoolwork. But, you know, I high-five them on the way out. I, I think if there's any opportunity for young people to experience life beyond school um, whilst at school, um, I think we should always try and make that happen. Yeah. What I'm keen to, to learn a little bit more about is you recently announced your Disrupt Ed social learning experience. Can mm. you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so that, that was a natural evolution from... Um, so Disrupt Ed started out as a professional learning network. And in part, it was a conversation that Maury and I had had when I realised that I was going to be leaving Maury, but um, I knew that I needed to have a network of like-minded people um, that I could throw ideas around with. So we decided to form, in the first um, um, step, was forming a, a professional learning network that was still in place. So six of us, so myself, Mori Abraham at Hobson Four Point Secondary School, um, Natasha Hemera at Rosha Turner Senior School, Nicola Naweda now at Spotswood, um, Andy Kaifong at Hayata Community Campus, and Steve Saville at Rolleston. And, and you know, we're people that we've all connected over different things anyway. So it started with that. So disrupted. Um, the first iteration was a, a PLN of six people, and that's still um, go, we get together once a term and still goes on. 
The next um, phase of that was we decided to, you know, why don't we grow this thing? Um, people are interested. Let's create um, a community. So we set up um, Disrupted as a group on Facebook. I think there's around 750 educators involved with that now. And we committed to doing fortnightly at least podcasts, which we divvy up and we um, we take turns as to who takes the lead around that. Um, and actually it was, I think it was Darcy Fawcett. It was one of, one of the educators on um, Disrupted made a, a sort of throwaway comment at one stage going, what is the point of this group? Um, and I thought, you know, it stuck with me, that comment. And I did think, well, what is the point? On one hand, it's it's providing a space for really positive, proactive people to come together, to share you know, ideas and thinking, um, and that still serves a really important purpose. But it did that comment sat with me, and I thought, is there something more we can be doing? Um, is there some way that we could um, sort of design a learning experience? I didn't want it to be a course. It wasn't about micro-credentials. It was about trying to maybe capture the stuff that the six of us talk about. So it turns out if you look across our schools, there's a whole lot of things in common um, in terms of impact projects or project-based learning, in terms of um, whanaungatanga and tutorials and learning hubs that are really relational and have a lot more teaching time um, than is you know, use, um, usual in traditional schools. And we were all trialling different things around a delivery of specialist subjects. Um, and we were all very committed to really relation, um, relationship-based learning and um, restorative practice. And I think, I think we're all driven by quite a similar sense of social justice or moral purpose as well. Um, and we're all itching for education as, an, uh, as a whole system to evolve. Um, and so I thought, well, there's an idea there. So when we had a meet-up with our principals and some of our DPs um, last term, I threw the idea on the table. I said, why don't we co-construct a course or a program or something? Um, and so we threw around some ideas on that day and then it sat there and just um, gathered a bit of cyber dust for a bit. And then I suddenly thought, no, bugger it, let's do this thing. So um, have constructed sort of a high-level framework for the um, social learning experience, the idea that it's a 20-week um, program that people can dip in and out of um, and that we, we co-designed co or co-constructed a high-level sort of curriculum or syllabus for the, the program, looking at future-focused learning, learning that matters um, around the sort of the principles and the mindset that underpins this kind of learning, and then going through, and it's an opportunity for all of us to share what we're doing in that project-based learning space, what we're all doing in that tutorial or learning hub or academic coaching type space, and then sharing um, what we're doing in our sort of newer approaches to the delivery of specialist subjects. And, you know, the idea is that um, the mantra of um, disrupted social learning experience is that the learning is slow and the learning is social. It, it tries to acknowledge the fact that we're really busy people um, and we don't always have the headspace and the time to be doing our masters or postgrad, but um, that we're actually, there is an appetite for learning more about what is going on in these schools, but also, you know, often the answers in the in the room, um, there's a whole lot of incredible educators who are now contributing readings and sharing their viewpoints. And I, I'm hoping it will, in, in a sense, be a bit of a, turn into a bit of a self-sustaining learning ecosystem for teachers. And um, I'm, I'm hoping that we can plant the seeds for a 
you know, maybe having thematic areas that we focus on um, and we can all share readings, we can all discuss and we can all, you know, take the opportunities to reflect. So the idea is for each topic that it, you go through a free three-week cycle. The first week is sharing and reading and looking at different readings and information. The second week is going to be focused on making connections across the readings and discussing them. And the third week, um, people are going to be challenged to take the learning and apply it to the context that they're currently in um, and reflect back to the group via a podcast or a blog post. So um, part of it's about trying to breed and encourage, uh, you know, a whole group of um, educators who are out there sharing the work that they're doing, but it's also about nurturing a group of educators who have an appetite for learning um, and and doing it in 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 a sort of um, I don't know, sort of a pretty sort of authentic and um, and natural, hopefully um, a natural sort of way. It's I don't want to force it. I don't want people to feel like there's you know that nothing's compulsory. You you join in and you dip in and you dip out as you see fit. Yeah, and that's that's what I like about it. You've removed a lot of barriers. It's simple. It's uh, you can drop in and drop out at will. I mean, you can you can participate without participating even you're hosting it on facebook which removes um you know there's there's no fear and dipping into that because we all use it and there's there's no focus on like micro credentials or signing up or cost or anything like that so i think it's something that's going to be really sustainable and and also i think you know a professional learning network or a mastermind is, is what i tend to call them and i'm in quite a few formal and informal masterminds i have a few educators that we just have discussions every day over over facebook messenger and then i'm in some more formal ones which are paid ones where i'm tapping into expertise of other people if you're serious about being a good teacher you can't do this in isolation you need to hear what other people are doing you need to be able to reflect on what's happening in your classroom and be able to compare and contrast with other learners and the challenges that they're facing, other teachers, sorry, and the challenges they're facing. And if you can do that, you're going to just be able to offer your students a much broader approach to the outcomes you're trying to achieve. Yeah, and and I like the fact that, I mean, I'm really trying to encourage anyone to take the lead as well Um, because I think, you know, you've got to have that approach. There is, you know, no one person who has the answers. Um, We we all simply have ideas and points of view, and um, I I hope people recognise that there is that sort of um, position around disruptive, that it, it is genuinely, yep, there might be six of us who happen to be a PLN, yep, there might be a few people who are, um, you know, moving the framework or the topics forward, but really it's it's shared ownership and shared responsibility for our learning. This flows nicely into the next question. If, if we think about how connected society is, and that's that's only going to get bigger and bigger, do you think that at some point in the near future, we're going to see the uptake of, say, something like tertiary education? Are we going to see the uptake of that drop off instead replaced by something that looks more like learning anywhere at any time and by people who are experts rather than qualified educators? I hope so. Um, I, I often wire on about my vision for the future of education and the concept of um co-learning spaces. I think there's stuff to be learned from those ecosystems that are evolving and developing in co-working spaces. Those co-working spaces, yep, they're a place to learn, but they're also a place to connect and network. And they're often delivering really informal and sometimes more formal professional development and retraining for those people as well. Um, I would love 
for schools to actually stop being schools and be community co-learning and co-working spaces that also housed health and well-being hubs for the whole community as well. I think it's crazy that we sit on these really expensive um, resources in high schools um, and schools um, that are closed, you know, for a good part of every day and for nearly 12 weeks of the year. It's it's insane. Um, you know, and, and also I think the concept of learning being something that happens formally from the ages of 5 to 18 um, is changing already. You know, we're seeing that... Um, with this idea that people are going to have to, you know, they're clearly changing careers and retraining and relearning throughout their lives now. Um, And so I I think, I wonder if universities might return to what they were in the past, a bit more like, i.e. homes of research. They're always, I think they will always serve a purpose for those going into law or or, um, you know, being the places that fund really important research and projects and those sorts of things. Um, And that actually learning beyond school um, won't necessarily happen in such a a structured um, or formal way. Um, And I would hope that we would all take some responsibility. What risks or challenges do you think say, opening up a school and bringing in other people and, and making it a less formal learning environment, what, what sort of challenges do you think we face in that? Um, I, th- I think the biggest risk is a potential reputational risk when people don't understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, and is that some- Sorry to interrupt. Is that something that is – it seems that that reputation, that community reputation is something that's always on a principal's mind. Would you, yeah. would you agree with that? Yes, I do. Absolutely. And um, and one of the things I'm working really hard at at Alany Senior High School is um, upping our community profile. So um, in terms of our immediate community, I commit to doing weekly Facebook live sessions um, on our Facebook page, telling them what we get up to. Um, but I also like work with a, a North Shore magazine, Channel Magazine, and do a monthly page to try and share our story because you know, I've seen it at uh, Hobsonville Point Secondary School and I've seen it here that, um, you know, people look at things like impact projects and project-based learning and go, oh, that doesn't look like what happened when I was at school. It can't be learning or it can't be, um, you know, rigorous, robust learning. You know, they just sit around, you know. And and it was a really interesting example of that today when I took some um, visiting principals from Philippines through the school. And I walked around and I thought, oh, you know, from the outside looking in, you might just see a kid at a computer and say, well, they're not up to much, you know. Um, and I sat down next to a student who has um, created a database for Jamies and June for the um, Middlemore, um, what are they, the Middlemore Association, which is distributing pyjamas um, across South Auckland throughout winter to ensure that every young person has um, warm pyjamas to wear. And she has d- designed um, a database for organising and redistributing over 4,000 sets of pyjamas to people across South Auckland. You know, and this is from the outside looking in, you might just go, there's a young person, you know, just kicking about on their computer. But this person is really throwing themselves in the deep end, um, um, participating in this incredibly important community outreach program and, and not just going and, you know, 
making people cups of coffee, coffee and sorting the mail for them. This young person is actually designing a, um, a database and an infrastructure and a computer system that's going to sustain that um, service to the community over the coming years and make it really efficient. I mean, what incredible learning that young person is doing. Um, but... That impact project doesn't produce NCA credits. Um, mm. It's not necessarily learning that's um, that's visible straight away. When you when you talk, it's only when you talk to those young people and you dig a bit deeper and you um, understand the incredible learning that has taken place. So, if we were to blow the schooling system apart and create these co-learning spaces, um, the biggest challenge would be people understanding it. Um, I think, um, and actually seeing, you know, because you tend to come into these situations presuming people understand the education system like you do, that understand the future of work, that understand um, the changing landscape that these young people are moving into. And you presume that everyone's on board with your crazy ideas because clearly what you're doing is about designing future-focused, relevant learning for these young people. But Actually, there's sometimes a whole lot of nervous parents that are really confused and concerned that you're not delivering up school like they experienced it. And, and mm. you know, they throw around terms like kids being guinea pigs and um, is there any evidence for what you're doing? Um, so... You know, often the challenge can be taking the community with you, um, having them understand, like, you know, I'm in this school and I think it's the most incredible school and I don't understand why we aren't absolutely bulging at the seams and people knocking down our door to get their kids in here. You know, we've got a, we've got a great school role and I think we've got an increasingly really positive reputation in our community, but I'm aware that there's still parts of our community that don't understand or value what we do. Um, and, you know, we're not even that crazy and different, you know. So if you did want to really um, reimagine um, what school is and how it works with the wider world, um, there's got to be a national conversation about that and um, a national sort of narrative around why school and its structures really do need to change. Mm. And I think if you look at what that young girl is doing, mm. it may not be as visible as NCA, it may not be measurable like NCA, but it's it's going to be a hell of a lot more transferable in the real world mm. as she moves forward and we consider lifelong learning. So um, all power to her and it sounds like she's done a fantastic job. Yeah, totally. It's really exciting. Fast forward five years, what do you think Year 13 leavers from Albany Senior High School will be saying about their learning journey at a school led by Claire Amos? Um, I'm sort of hoping that they might not even really refer to it as school. (laughs) Um, I I feel like um, what I want them to say is that they could not be better equipped for thriving and contributing um, to the community. And actually that they may not even notice the transition, um, you know, from what we call a school environment into whatever it is that they do beyond. Because I think what I hope is that they've been so connected to um, the community, to business, to industry, to tertiary spaces, that actually they transition out and transition back in in such a way that there's no sort of formal end point, which sounds maybe sounds a bit wishy-washy. <laughs> I don't know. But I, I, I like to think that we might be part of a bigger a bigger learning journey for them by that stage, you know, and not be this formal come in, 
be processed for three years and leave at the other end, that they actually see themselves as but part of something so much bigger in terms of, you know, partnering with the university, partnering with business and industry and community, that they, they sort of nearly um, sort of sort of step out into that world having already been half in that world already. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I, think I see what you're saying mm-hmm. there. And some similarities, we, we have a motto at our school, receive the light and pass it on, and part of that is – encouraging and facilitating ex-students to drop back into the school and support those people coming through. But it's also about taking um, the rich learning or the unique learning that they've learned from our school, which is brotherhood is one of those things that come to mind and being able to pass on that, um, not information, but that learning and experiences to other people so that they can experience experience that as well. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Before we get to the last question, is there anything that I might have missed that you want to mention or is there anything you want to ask me? Um, I guess I, I'd like to understand for your listenership, I know you have come from a health and PE background, what is it that people are worried about at the moment? What are they caring about? What's the conversations going on within the, in the sort of health and PE space? I think the conversation at the moment is, is still quite stuck around that whole space of consent and sexuality and Mm. some of those um really i've had a couple of health lessons over the last few days with some year 10s and and we've been talking about things that they want to learn and they keep coming back to these critical concepts such as um pornography and how that can impact them and issues like uh we talked about circumcision and why that happens and how the consent around all of that stuff and they're really interested in the law and I think we have a lot of parents who are worried about um, where society is going with this uh, the role technology is playing and um, how a lot of this content is accessible by their their kids and they're worried that it's gonna impact them negatively moving forward. And I think they're right to be worried. And as a young parent myself, a parent of of young kids, I've got a five-year-old who's just starting to experience some of those, um, you know, the bullying and some of those things, even as a six-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old. And it's really scary as a parent. Mm. And we're in this big world that's connected and this need for a student to be able to, um, I guess, take some information, look at it and understand the value in that or the risk in consuming that or all of those things, um, that's hard to teach that and it's hard for kids to understand that. And then, again, you're dealing with parents like you touched on about how they've experienced school. It's the same thing. We're talking to our students and their parents about things they have no idea about. You know, our kids are digital natives. They're born into it. They know all of this stuff. But I guess they're experiencing it firsthand. We haven't seen the implications of all of this digital consumption and what it's yeah. going to mean for the future. And the parents have absolutely, absolutely zero idea about it. So I feel that's kind of what yeah. my community and my audience is yeah. concerned about. And, and it's sense? a really interesting space because, I mean, obviously my having my NetSafe hat on, I've sort of, um, as, as sort of kept across a certain amount of that through through that um, role. But what, what I'm finding really interesting recently, like I've always had a – 
a position around openness around the internet. Like I, I think we do our young people a disservice when we shut everything down and we limit um, their access to things. Because I think one of the, the greatest skills we can teach them is self-regulation and, um, mm-hmm. you know, managing themselves to a degree. But what I found really is interesting just in the last couple of months is the really interesting research that's starting to come about um, that is actually debunking a lot of myths around the damage of screen time and social media. Um, so I, I just listened this morning, actually, on the way to school around a report coming out of Oxford or Harvard or somewhere like that um, around um, there's little, if any, um, actual evidence of the harm that social media is doing to young people. And then only about a couple of weeks ago, there was a really interesting article saying that actually um, they're, they're realising now that there's very little impact in terms of screen time even before bed um, around health and well-being of young people. So I think we're going through quite an interesting period of time where there was, you know, the fact that basically, you know, social media and internet and screen time has been vilified as, you know, the equivalent of crack cocaine for young people and that Mm. they're addicted and um, that they're absolutely, um, you know, sucked in and and exposed to so much. And there's no denying the fact that it's it's scary to think what they can access now. You know, that's something that just didn't exist. You know, you had to go find your Playboy magazine under Dad's bed or wherever it was um, to access (laughs) pornography. Um, And, you know, and they can do that now. I'm laughing because I had that. I'm laughing because I had that exact same conversation (laughs) with my year 10 yesterday. But, you know, that's scary. But but on the other hand, I think there's a lot of the other stuff. So, you know, exclusion, bullying and all of that stuff that is simply being surfaced by social media and the internet and they're doing it on living out their lives online. Um, and, yep, there are ramifications around that. But I think we've got to be careful to not... Um, paint an overly negative um, um, picture of being a teenager. Like I think we we nearly um, we nearly actually are shooting ourselves in the foot around anxiety and depression. The reality is. Being a teenager has been complex since the beginning of time. And, um, you know, teenagers have done dumb shit and they have socially isolated one another and treated each other poorly and not understood consent and all of those things um, since since the beginning of time. But we can't escape it when it gets shared on social media and suddenly we get given Mm. screenshots and, and all the rest of it. So... I think it's really interesting. I think on one hand, while I think there are real areas of concern around access to pornography and, you know, the kind of sort of dark net spaces that, that people can hang out on, um, yep, that is a concern. But I also think we're now starting to see um, surfacing of evidence and research that suggests that actually it's still actually the relationships that these um, young people have with the adults in their life and with their family and with their peers that makes all of the difference. And, um, and yes, we do need to make sure that they get away from screens and get outside. But, you know, for years now, kids have been stuck in front of TVs. Um, yep. You know, the screens might have changed size, um, but, but they have, to a degree, always been there. And kids can self-regulate. You know, I've yep. seen it with my kids. I, I, I live in front of a screen because 
that's that's me. I love technology, and my my business on the side is based in technology. Yeah. And I tend I tend not to enforce too many restrictions with my kids, and they yeah. but they can self regulate, and they do. And and when they do that, we have positive reinforcement. And it's you know as far as I can see it. It isn't a problem yet, but um, that research that you mentioned um, is really interesting. I'm gonna I'm gonna hunt it out so I can yeah, justify yeah, I'll, to I'll my wife. My yeah, I, think that's yeah. <laughs> um, I did have one final question, and it's related to your passion around tattoos and body art. And it seems like, as a principle, that's that's something that's probably. Um, Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it seems that principles would tend to be rather conservative, but you seem to have this passion. And the, and the reason I ask is because I'm, I want to get a tattoo, but I just can't decide on what I want to get. <laughs> and it's like I don't want to put something on my body and then regret it. But oh, where does that totally. passion come from? Yeah. Well, it's quite funny. I, I came into tattooing slightly later in life. So I often talk to our students because we often have conversations about my tattoos, um, um, about the fact that I was 30 by the time I got my first tattoo. Might have even been slightly older than that. Um, and it was actually after um, my girls were born that I, their, their names on my wrists were actually my first um, tattoos that I got. And I, I think part of it is it's sort of like I love fashion and shoes and aesthetics in general. And I've always had the, I mean, I've now got the quote tattooed on me, that um, the Oscar Wilde quote, that you can never be overdressed or overeducated. Um, to me, it, it's it's been an extension of um, self-expression. Um, and um, the tattoos I have, you know, I could pretend that there's deep and meaningful backstories behind each and every one of them. And some of them there are. But um, actually, a lot of them are because I love the design and the aesthetic and the colour. Um, um, and, I, you know, I, I think because I've always been determined to, you know, preserve my right to be an individual, I think it was a little bit sort of it's a way to put a line in the sand because once you have tattoos and once you have your arms and your forearms tattooed and you know they're going to be visible, it's a little bit like saying, you look, this is who I am. You're going to take me or leave me. You know, I'm not going to change. My tattoos aren't going to disappear. Um, and actually, they're part of the package. And I, I think it, it was a combination of, yep, artistic self-expression, but I suspect it was also driven by a desire to make people realise that I'm very much my own person, that, you know, stuff you, I'm going to express myself. I am an apologetically loud and colourful and going to wear daft shoes and um, colour my hair, wear, you know, however I want to. Um, and, and quite frankly, as life has gone on, I've actually recognised that makes me a really important role model. <laughs> In the sense that um, I want our young people and I want our teachers to realise that you don't have to compromise who you are. Um, but actually who you are is a really important part of what you bring to your life and your classroom and whatever the career is um, that, that you are going to construct. And quite frankly, um, you know, like I've, I've got dreams of being potentially a politician after being an educator and, um, you know, and I, I, I would... You know, I look forward to the day where I can bring colour into that space as well. Claire, I just wanted to take this opportunity to really thank you for taking the time out because I know principals are really busy. Um, this chat, I know we've had some technical difficulties. Uh, hopefully it all pans out when I go back and look at the file. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you're a, um, you're a fascinating person and you're a really amazing leader and I think your staff and your students are, are extremely lucky to have somebody at the helm uh, like yourself. 
Um, I see a lot of links um, between what you talk about and what uh, some of the great leaders that I've worked under um, talk about. And I think that's um, that's really cool to hear. And I'd read a little bit about you and I knew a little bit about you, but being able to sit down and um, you know have a yarn about some of these concepts and ideas has been um, really eye-opening for me. And I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you. And I appreciate you inviting me. I mean, I'm, I love having any opportunity to have these conversations. And, um, you know, and, and I, I thank you for letting me have this opportunity and this platform to share my thinking and ideas. And um, I, I hope some of your people can also be encouraged to come and um, join into the disruptive conversations because, you know, diverse voices is, is what makes it really interesting. But thank you. Sure. No, thank you.